0: I think as I've gotten older, the rituals of Judaism have become more and more a conduit for the divine.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
2: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Rabbi Wenger, thank you so much for coming and being on In Good Faith. Thank you, Stephen. It's a joy to be with you. You started your religious life in a very interesting place, smack dab in the middle of the United States. As I understand it, one of very few Jews in the area.
0: That's certainly true. Uh, As you know, I was born in Davenport, Iowa, and raised, graduated high school from Rock Island High School in Rock Island, Illinois, and uh, spent many years uh, at the Tri-City Jewish Center, which was a synagogue that my parents founded where I got my earliest religious education because my family was intimately involved in the synagogue. It was part of our everyday life. I attended religious school there four days a week, and that didn't count services on Saturday mornings. You might say is that there never was a time when Judaism was far from my awareness, sometimes enthusiastically and sometimes less so. Meaning you were a normal child. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, anybody who is professional clergy, you can't quite define as normal, but that's a different topic for a different day. But basically, some of the things that maybe the listenership might be interested in is that there were several spiritual turning points in my life which happened at a relatively early age one of them had to do with the fact that my grandparents were orthodox my parents wanted us to be raised in a conservative jewish setting where boys and girls would study together and they would be more english spoken rather than yiddish and then when i got to my early adolescence i figured out that the cutest girls in the area were at the Reform Temple across the river in Davenport, Iowa. So there was a time when my parents participated in all three congregations in our area. Hmm. We worshiped with our grandparents in the Orthodox style, with my family regularly and conservative. And then I went to the youth group at the Reform Temple. So it enabled me to grow up with a blurring of those ideological differences. You found yourself at a very young age often being called upon to be the explainer of who you were. That happens to almost all Jewish kids in uh, relatively diverse communities or isolated communities. You end up bringing uh, the menorah on Hanukkah and the matzah on Passover. Mm. And so uh, you end up explaining yourself. And by explaining yourself... As a lot of your listenership knows, good LDS kids learn how to define their faith by witnessing to others. So without any formal program, that's what I found myself doing. I would say probably also a major turning point in my life was 1954 when my dad died very suddenly. Hmm. And at that point, my grandfather took me in tow and brought me to synagogue at least four days a week for a daily service that lasted no more than 20 minutes. Well, this was a very ritualistically oriented all Hebrew service. We used to jokingly say, keep your engines running because most of the clientele (laughs) had to get out and go to work. And service started at 6.30, by seven o'clock, we were out the door, more or less. And they had a custom, Stephen, that if you were in mourning for a parent, you were expected to lead the services. Hmm. So my earliest impression of that experience was when these 15 or so men, all of whom were at least 110 in my imagination, <laughs> pushed me in front of the congregation and said, okay, lead services, Fred, lead services, and do it as fast as you can. So as a result, this whole Jewish ritual uh program got, in a way, introduced to me, and because all the men kind of adopted me, I rather enjoyed it. Mm. After that experience, when I was in my upper years, years of high school, I fell away from Judaism as an organized religious organization, although I kept my ties with our local synagogue, mostly through basketball, and uh, only came back when I entered U- University of Chicago. And there, I went to the B'nai B'rith Hillel Foundation, which is our campus ministry, probably in search of girls, and found that they had nobody who could lead certain services which I had learned how to do. Hmm. So I became their cantor. And from that point on, I graduated in political science, minor in Far Eastern studies, and found out that I was having much more satisfaction in learning about Judaism than any other academic pursuit I was pursuing at the time. So I went off to, well, everybody was encouraging me to go into the conservative rabbinate, and it was an amazing place, and about five rabbis came out of University of Chicago in those years. I was the sort of maverick that said, no, I want a place where I can challenge my own thinking a little bit more radically, and so I went to Reform Seminary, which is the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Was ordained from there in 1969 and was promptly volunteered into the United States Army Chaplaincy. The Reform Movement requested that I go into the chaplaincy, and I went willingly and spent a year in South Carolina, a year in Vietnam, and came away from Vietnam and immediately went to Milwaukee, where I carried away the best part of Milwaukee, namely Rochelle, my wife.
2: Congratulations. No, so that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) You brought up several very wonderful topics that we could spend time on just in that short summary, but I'd like to dig into just a few of those. First, in your younger years, growing up, besides understanding intellectually, this is a tradition of thousands of years that I'm part of. At some point, did you realize this is actually still alive? I think there really is God.
0: (sighs) Where to start with that question? First of all... I'm now 76 years old. And so, therefore, to think back to where my mind and my heart and my soul was in my younger years becomes a challenge because, I mean, today is very full. But I believe that we find God reaching out to touch us at times when we feel inadequate ourselves. So I would say probably while I had said Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, morning and evening for as long as I can remember back into earliest childhood. It meant more to me after I was 14 years old when Dad died. Hmm. Because then I realized that, oh, our Heavenly Father would be probably a good comfort to have and found comfort in that area, if that makes sense. I've also heard it said that there are no atheists in foxholes. Maybe, 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 but uh, somehow or other, sometimes the foxholes are internal and sometimes they're external. And probably some of
2: both you encountered in chaplaincy in, in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Was that enlightening for you personally in being a kind of a religious counselor to people of different faiths in that situation?
0: Different faiths and different contexts and different expressions. My chaplaincy experience was even broader because, uh, whereas I'd gone from Illinois to Cincinnati, Ohio, and then directly into the Army, and then the Army sent me to Fort Hamilton, which is in Brooklyn. And from there, I got assigned to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where all the Vietnam draftees, or at least a good proportion of them, were sent to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and I found a full chapel full of Jews. And we used to say, how many of you are from the Bronx? How many of you are from Brooklyn? How many of you are from Staten Island? How many of you how many are from the rest of the country? <laughs> because it was overwhelmingly an Eastern urban Jewish setting.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And except for University of Chicago, which is its own little particular oh, academic ghetto, I hadn't had that, Period. You know, it's uh, in Chicago. My religious experience was confined to Hillel, and that was very academic. We had an ongoing Hillel faculty council, which programmed for the foundation itself. So, everybody from Leo Strauss to Saul Bellow to Paul Tillich to all different kinds of people, religious Jews, irreligious Jews. Enlightened us, and once in a while the rabbi got a word in edgewise, but then not not quite that often because he had all these academics around him. And then I went into seminary, and then into uh, the army, and there there was an understanding of how the Jewish experience touched all over the United States, and then on to Vietnam. My role was directly dependent on the unit chaplains and the area chaplains from all of the religious faiths which the U.S. Army served. And as a matter of fact, the Mormon chaplain and I had a couple of things in common. We were not assigned to units. We were assigned to Mormons or Jews. Mm. And so we went all over the country essentially organizing services. But the way in which it touched me also firsthand was to see the tremendous tragedy of human life, of human suffering, of Vietnamese suffering, of the American troops' suffering. Did a certain amount of work with heroin addicts among GIs. Yeah, I think I came out of the Army probably a very different person than I went in. And I couldn't quite even begin to describe that because that's kind of a gulf Mm. over which it's difficult to leap except intellectually. Has that affected your choice of what you've done with the rest of your life, that experience? Well, it pops up in strange places. I think it probably reinforced my desire to go into the congregational rabbinate to serve a synagogue, mm-hmm. as opposed to doing academic work or college work or maybe even serving, serving in Israel, for which we've spent a good amount of time. But it gave me a greater understanding of what it meant to be a Jew and a spiritual person in everyday life, when everyday life hits you with extraordinary events, whether good or bad. As my mother, of blessed memory, would put it, She would say, Fred, as a result of the army, you lost your University of Chicago nose. (laughs) (laughs)
2: As you look back from where you are on your life journey and your faith journey right now, are you able to see the hand of God? Do you feel like, I think I was maybe led here and there?
0: Uh, There's a part of my mind that says, does that particular line of questioning cast a doubt on, let's say free will or mm. as LDS folks would say agency you know it's, mm. but certainly i think that if god has a plan for the world globally then certain people are called to do certain things at certain times and places without necessarily any consequences providing the choices are neither illegal immoral or fattening <laughs> Your time in Israel, was it what you expected? Let's put it this way. Yes and no. Uh, The first time my wife and myself went to Israel was in uh, 1972. And there we studied in Jerusalem and studied modern Hebrew languages and basically were honeymooning. And there it was sightseeing, language enrichment, and uh, in a way... Bonding with each other over a period of time, in between our time in Milwaukee and our time in Huntington, West Virginia, which is which was my next next pulpit. When I first went to Israel, and I saw signs in Hebrew and newspapers in Hebrew, I thought it all was. Lashon Kodesh holy language you know it's here is here is a magazine and finally as you get to be familiar with modern Hebrew language as you are to a certain extent uh, you realize that This is secular literature. Everything from a Bible commentary to a popular magazine that you wouldn't show your children, it all looks as if it is holy (laughs) language. (laughs) And so, therefore, the awareness of the strength of the secular Israeli community became impressed upon me at that particular time. And from there, I realized, as a liberal religious Jew— This put me on the cusp, on the boundaries between two different worlds. Mm -hmm. The world of what Israelis normally call the religious world, Orthodox, ranging all the way from modern Orthodox Jews who are academically trained, have a worldly profession, have gone to the Hebrew University or Bar-Ilan University, all the way to the sectarian Hasidic groups who deliberately dress in ancient garb, all the way from them to Israeli social groups that are intensely Jewish and violently anti-religious. Would that include kibbutzim? Some kibbutzim are divided up into different movements, and the movements are largely ideological. Although in the last 30, 40 years, those ideologies have mellowed all the way across the board. But, uh, oh, except if you're talking in the West Bank, in which case they have a tendency to be more ideologically oriented. The world of the kibbutz is an entirely different subject for an entirely different show, but I was able to cross over between all of these worlds. Did some volunteer work on Yad Vata, which has the largest dairy in the southern part of Israel, to kibbutz lotan, which is a reformed kibbutz. Every single group of of Israeli Jews has its own little pet kibbutz. All those are going through a transformation due to all the things that are happening in the world.
2: You have served congregations many places in the U.S., from Kansas, you mentioned uh, being in West Virginia, also
0: in Alaska. That was an interesting choice. That was the cherry on the top of the chocolate sundae. (laughs) It so happens that our son Chaim has been in love with two things, now three things. Number one, of course, is faith and family. Number two is airplanes and flying. And number three is Alaska. And so immediately after college, he moved up to Alaska, got himself a job, and was renting a room from one of the officers of the synagogue there. When their rabbi suddenly left and Rochelle and I were in Israel, the Alaska synagogue sent me an email saying, uh, how would you like to come up to Anchorage and lead a Passover Seder? You'll get a free trip up to see your son. Fine, wonderful. Then, Steve, they put six of the cutest bar mitzvah boys and girls that I'd ever seen, and they say, they have their bar mitzvahs in the summer. Mind you, this is this is Passover. Listen to them and tell me, how are they doing? I listened, then I gave the wrong answer. I said, they're awful. At which point they said, hey, why don't you... Stay around here, instruct them, and then officiate at their B'nai Mitzvah over the summer, their Bar Mitzvah and Bat Mitzvah. That led to an association over four years because to get a rabbi who is fitting for Alaska is almost as difficult as finding one for Utah. (laughs) And so uh, we ended up living in Salt Lake City, but going up to Anchorage all summer long for the fall holiday season, then for Hanukkah, then for Passover than for the summer season all over again for four years. And it was very interesting because the Alaska Synagogue is very much a do-it-yourself operation. There is no function of synagogue life where a layperson, properly trained, can't do it all. Mm-hmm. So the rabbi is there when you need somebody to enhance the program that you already have, have in place. And that's been pretty much the history of Judaism in America, too. It was very much a bottom-up kind of thing. The first Jews who moved to the United States were not that religious, but on the frontier, they knew they were Jewish, and so 10 Jews, you have a synagogue. After that, when they get to be about maybe 25 or 30, they need a board of trustees and a polity and incorporation. And after that, they say, gee, we're tired of listening to ourselves. We need someone to teach us, and rabbis are found. All of these congregations formed associations of congregations, which developed into movements, which then started seminaries, and the seminaries trained rabbis, and now you have a whole bureaucracy, even as any other religious organization does.
2: Let me ask you to move to the personal here. Are there rituals that you observe personally, daily or weekly, whatever it might be, that you feel connect you with the divine?
0: I think as I've gotten older, the rituals of Judaism— have become more and more a conduit for the divine. Just the simple act of getting up early in the morning and going to my synagogue and putting on tefillin, wrapping myself in phylacteries, and either leading the service or even better, listening to somebody else lead the service so I can participate more, to weekly Sabbath observance, candles and a Sabbath meal, whether it's guests or just Rochelle and myself, to all of the holidays, customs, and ceremonies, I've learned to appreciate and to find God in them more and more as I've grown older. Mm. We could get more specific, but that would take us far afield. But as the Jewish thinker Abraham Joshua Heschel said, Judaism exists to establish a palace in time, not a palace in space. uh, I would say if you had to compare the... 10 most glorious synagogues in the world, with the 10 most glorious churches in the world, oh, we would come in a distant second or third place. But in terms of what we've done with our times and seasons, have enabled a ritual life to speak to the Jew who is spiritually sensitive. But it's nothing that comes like Paul on the road to Damascus. It doesn't come suddenly. It's kind of like music appreciation. Once you learn how to appreciate a symphony, the second symphony becomes easier and you get more out of the first. Hmm. Same kind of thing with ritual.
2: When you work with people who are believers or aren't, or are questioning, do you see a difference between people who are willing to take that leap of faith or who
0: aren't? Or or is it it a Yes and no. Uh, the person who is willing to take that leap of action leading to faith or a leap of faith already has a vocabulary hmm. that he and I or she and I can share. A person who has not taken that, then you have to find another point of connection. As I've sometimes said, it's not so important whether or not you know God as whether or not God knows you. <laughs> now, Let's see where that might have happened. Uh huh. And then where would you walk with someone through that? That would depend very much on the someone. But basically to show them where their spiritual, where an increased exposure to Judaism and Jewishness might increase the spiritual sensitivities that they might have. You mentioned that in the choice of school for the rabbinate, that
2: you wanted to go someplace where you would be challenging even your own thinking. Is that something you've tried to maintain?
0: I believe so, yes. At least I hope and pray so. Because... Unless you do that perpetually, you'll never grow beyond the level that you have been in the past. And if God is infinite, then the knowledge about God has infinite dimensions. So, for example, uh, every single year when we go through the cycle of Scripture readings, of Torah readings, you find God speaking in different ways and you find different dimensions to God. Problems that you thought you had, let's say, with uh, God in your younger years get replaced by more profound problems as you grow older <laughs> because i think that's the way in which god wants it that we have different experiences that and cause also, us to and also that we constantly should be growing in our knowledge of god what should i ask you that i don't know to ask you uh, probably what's the role of music hmm. in my spiritual life i mean would and i think that might be a connecting point too I would say probably is that uh, it was a good Methodist by the name of Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was John Wesley's brother who wrote just a ton of hymns, which all Christian denominations adopted and adapted. Some of them changed words to them. But he said, and please correct me if I'm getting the wrong citation, a person who sings his prayer prays twice so that whether the music is... uh, music in song, in word, in chant, in cantorial work, or simply instrumental music, it has a way of opening your mind and heart to a spiritual dimension that is inexplicable in words. Now, sometimes we regard this as inspiring, but I think that's a bit too narrow because when you listen to something, let's say like Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, with its oral depiction of a very pagan dance, you find yourself thinking, well, and God's there too. And so the division between the sacred and the secular becomes blurred, especially when you get into music that's challenging. And I think that a lot of young people are finding this in the new musical Hamilton, where I mean, it's rap, it's rock. yeah, And yet it's about the spiritual founders of our country. So I think that our emotional divisions and our emotional hang-ups can be enhanced through listening to uh, music of all kinds.
2: You have me wondering now if one of the reasons why the Jewish tradition has continued through the thousands of years is partly because of cantors and that addition to the text.
0: Might be. I mean, it's, there are those who will argue from a scholarly point of view that the role of the cantor in the synagogue is older than the role of the rabbi in the synagogue. Rabbis were originally the heirs of the Pharisees and therefore intellectual giants. But a cantor was necessary before the days of the printing press, when not everybody had a prayer book. And so therefore, the cantor was the one who was assigned to know the entire service back to front, And the congregation would just join in and the cantor would begin a prayer, end a prayer. At special prayers, he would improvise, now she, by the way, and uh, as a result would be able to elevate the spirituality of the congregation not only through participation but also through the art of listening as the cantor essentially would cry out loud on behalf of the congregation who would be, like Tevya, relatively inarticulate in public.
2: Rabbi Fred Wenger, it's an honor to hear you share your thoughts. Thank you very much for speaking with us.
0: Well, and Stephen Gap-Perry, it's been an honor to be with you on this wonderful show, and I wish it good fortune with all the other guests that you have. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll explore what a cantor does in a synagogue as we join Congregation Kol Ami in Salt Lake City for choir practice, plus a discussion with a panel of listeners on some of the ideas Rabbi Wenger presented. Back in a moment, In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith. Listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. In the first half of the show, we heard an interview with Rabbi Emeritus Fred Winger. Among other ideas, he mentioned the role of the cantor in a synagogue. We went to choir practice at Congregation Kol Ami as they prepare for upcoming holidays and spoke with the cantor, Wendy Batsara. Thanks.
3: The cantor is really central to the prayer experience. Any event, any life cycle event, a funeral, when a baby is brought into the covenant, when people are married, all of this is expressed through music. And it's really our job to, I don't know how best to put it, but it's it's. You know, we walk around in life being very shallow and and just going to the grocery store and doing our lives, and somehow if you get the right music at the right moment, you connect somebody to their soul and to the divine, and, and you can have a really transcendent experience. And, you know, that's my very small job. It's a huge job, and it's one that we have to do with great humility, frankly. The texts that we're bringing to life with the music are ancient. So even if you are a modern speaker of Hebrew, it's a little bit like listening to Shakespeare or even Beowulf. It can be incomprehensible. So the job of the chant or of the composed music is to really translate the emotion behind the texts. Traditional Jewish prayer is borrowed in snippets from everywhere within Jewish scripture. But if you don't know where the borrowing is coming from, you don't have the full experience of it. And I can't stand there in the middle of a prayer service and say, oh, by the way, this is from this psalm and this is from that time when Moses was talking to God. So somehow I have to try to express that through how I chant it. The other thing that's expressed is what day is it there are weekday melodies and there are shabbat melodies sabbath melodies there are melodies that are only sung on rosh hashanah and yom kippur to let you know the depth of the importance of those days it was an almost entirely an oral tradition until the late 18th century when some jews could get conservatory training So it was. It was absolutely a teacher-student relationship, and you had to learn it. And you learned it as an organic process by having a good voice when you were nine, and so being taken under somebody's wing, and just learning it as you grew up. Absolutely. So depending on your congregation, you might have 90% of them are only the cantor, or another congregation where the cantor might be doing largely sing-along things. Look, Jewish prayer is always in the first person plural. We never ask for something for me. So when we are repenting, we stand up and we say, we have sinned, we have committed these crimes. Because frankly, if something goes wrong in your world and you don't do your utmost to stop it, you are in some way complicit. But this prayer that begins that service, Hineni, is the cantor saying, I am an imperfect vessel. And even though I am bringing all of these prayers to you, God, I know that I'm not the perfect vessel for these prayers. And and don't let my shortcomings get in the way of you forgiving the congregation because they're deserving of that forgiveness. Um, And the cantor starts at the back of the congregation and walks forward as this prayer is unfolding, and the tradition here is that as we reach each row, the congregants stand up to join us, like to to give us strength that we support you in leading us and raising our prayers up. It's an incredibly powerful sensation. <laughs> yeah. Shalom Rav concludes the central prayers of the evening service. The central prayers are called the Amidah, the standing up prayer. And Shalom Rav wishes for peace. But how it begins is, Shalom Rav al Yisrael amcha tasim le'olam, place a great peace over your people Israel and over the whole world. The version that we're doing for the High Holidays was composed by Ben Steinberg, a modern composer. What he's constantly expressing in the music, which makes it a little challenging to sing, is this reaching up for heaven and then the peace coming back down to earth. So there are a lot of octave jumps, but the point is he's wanting you to reach up for that sense of peace and let yourself rise there rather than be stuck with this world which is in anything but peace. So he really expertly expresses that in this composition.
2: Music, ritual, community, solitary prayer, so many ways to experience the divine in life. Which ways reach you? We invited several people to listen to the interview with Rabbi Wenger in the first half of the show and then share their thoughts. Josh Menden is a devoted husband and a student studying English and computer science. Erica Price is from Albuquerque, New Mexico. She lives in Utah now with her husband and five sons and teaches in the English department at BYU. Rachel Sherman is from Colorado and works as a producer here at BYU Radio. Rachel's husband, Andrew Woolston, is a native Texan from Houston who works as a software developer at Chatbooks. Once they listened to Rabbi Wanger, the discussion began.
4: One thing that the rabbi said that really spoke to me was... This idea of bottom up religiosity, and he kind of shared the story of that's kind of how Judaism was in the U.S. How they came together, and um, you know there and there were a few of them, and then there were ten of them, and then all of a sudden they decided, okay, now we need a rabbi. And I uh, was wondering, at what point in your spiritual progression does it become more beneficial to have somebody trained? Uh, or someone with some some sort of technical experience teach you? Is it when you reach a certain age? Is it when you reach a certain spiritual progression? Or is it when? Okay, now there's ten of us. There's too many of us to facilitate our own conversation. Uh, and so I was wondering. Um, at least for me, it was. I think that it, it it becomes different types of instruction. So I think that there is some benefit to having group or even individual spiritual progression. But there's some things I think that you need to be taught by somebody with some sort of, of formal experience. I, I think that that's something that most religions have and and something that is, is crucial to spiritual growth.
1: I've seen this in my life as a mother of children, where you have to walk a line between understanding that you are an individual, but you're also part of a tradition. And as helpful as it is to receive instruction from other mothers who have been where you have been, who have more wisdom than you have, who can act as models for you, there is also that need for you to find your own individual path, what works for you and your family. And and maybe that translates into religious belief as well, that we need to find that balance.
4: So what do you think then that... Um, a, a trained leader brings to the spiritual experience. I think I agree with you that um, it can become easy to lean too heavily on their knowledge and even their faith. Um, so what what can they bring to the table that will enrich your your spiritual
5: experience? Um, I honestly feel like w- when you have a leader, a lot of times you as a group may, may be able to reach a, a some kind of consensus or some kind of feeling about a certain topic, but it may take some time to reach that, reach that consensus or that feeling. And when you have that leader with that formalized training, sometimes they can kind of nudge or point you in the right direction of right understanding. And you can kind of tackle these hurdles and move on to more, more detailed, more introspective parts of your life in a way that you may not be able to just leaning on each other rather than having a formalized leader like that. So more of a guide. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And that's, I've seen that in my own life as well. Cause I do think that you reach a certain point where you just can't see the answer on your own. And, and even a higher power doesn't want you to do it on your own. I think that they would want you to have a guide, someone that can help you to see something. Oh, I hadn't seen that way before, or oh, you're right. I should be doing this or that. And that can help you, but only if you are personally invested in your own spiritual growth.
1: But I also think, um, as the rabbi mentioned many times, it was important to the rabbi to be able to contribute in different situations. People depended on him to either be the cantor for a service or to uh, teach people how to conduct the services the appropriate way or to be the chaplain in the military. And it makes me wonder what kind of a role faith would have in our lives if we didn't have that sense of need, that people needed us. I just know that um, service is so satisfying, I think because you feel like you're needed. I think participating in rituals is satisfying because it feels like, oh, someone needs me here. He even talked about music and and to be needed in a group as you sing because your voice would leave them one chord short. I'm curious to know what you've guys think about being needed. I mean, do you feel needed in faith?
4: Yeah, well that, that I mean the rabbi it, it seemed to me at least that his experience first when he was expected to lead the uh, the sermon after his father's death and then later as a chaplain that those experiences are what really solidified his faith. So, I think that to feel needed is a crucial part of of the spiritual growth, but I also think that at some point, you have to take your spiritual life and put it in action. And I think that then it becomes kind of a give and take where the more you are actively putting in practice the things that you feel and things that you learn, the more likely you are to feel and learn more. And then you kind of become caught in a, a good cycle of, of growth.
6: In my church, the the calling or the job I'm assigned to do is to um, teach lessons to, to eight-year-old children every Sunday. And while sometimes it feels like that is a terrible burden, and I would rather not be in charge of anyone else's spiritual development. It really does help me, because if I didn't show up and teach that lesson, I mean, I'm sure someone else would, but the, the mere fact that I I have been assigned to do that, to help other people in their faith, gives me more confidence in my own faith, and I, I find I really appreciate that.
4: Erica, you talked a little bit about music, so I, I play the organ for my congregation, and he talked about... The spiritual and the secular—the lines being blurred with music—and I think that, I mean, you look at the early classical composers of Bach and Mozart, and and you know everything they did was very religious, and and then he talked about Rite of Spring, which is you know it's about a pagan ritual, and and I think that music has—and that was interesting to me that. That was the question that he felt like he needed to be asked. You know, was oh you didn't ask me about music, and so he said oh okay yeah. Um, and I think that music has the ability to to touch something across all sorts of boundaries, and, and I think everyone has experienced that to some degree.
5: Yeah, totally. I feel if if someone asked me during an interview what was the one thing you didn't ask me about, the the mention the thought of music would not right. enter my mind. Right, and I thought that was fascinating. It's just music is so intertwined with all of our faiths but i would never c- never think about it being that essential part hmm. that you forgot to ask me about uh, i like how we talked about how music um i forget who he quoted but he he mentioned that a, a song is like another form of prayer and when we sing it's it, it basically elevates and brings another another dimension another aspect to to our to our feeling to our spirituality and to our prayer in in a way that really nothing else can
6: i think he the quote was um, a person who sings his prayer praise twice that resonated with me because sometimes I feel like I get so stuck in saying the same prayer literally over and over if I'm if I'm having the same kind of problem and <laughs> it doesn't seem to be going away. Sometimes I just wish, oh, I wish I could make this prayer twice as effective as it normally would be if I'm just saying it. And I never thought about, about song as a way to accomplish that.
1: This week I heard of a person who joined a congregation simply because he walked in, sat down, heard music and said, I want to be here because they sound like they mean it Hmm. when they sing. And I think music is such a a sensory experience, but it's also very demonstrative of how we feel on the inside. And so often if you have feelings that are spiritual or uh, tender to you, you don't always share those with people. And and I think song is that mechanism that can break down those walls and, and makes our insides part of our outsides.
4: That kind of um, leads me to, to think about something else that he said in the interview where he talked about um, – so he was asked, what what do you see about people who take a leap of faith and those who don't take that leap of faith? And he talked about common vocabulary. I thought that was really interesting. He said the people who do take that leap of faith are those who have common vocabulary and the, those that don't. Um, They need to find some other form of of, of connection. And and I thought to myself, what would my religious experience be like if I didn't have words to describe it to myself or to other people? You know, I think a, a lot of us who have grown up with religion We just kind of know this is the form of how we express our religious feelings. And I think that if we didn't have that, it would be significantly harder to believe in a higher power or in a a greater system for the universe if we didn't have a way to express that in words.
1: And that being said, I have found – and he he talked about this later in the interview where he talked about constantly challenging his faith because – God has infinite knowledge, and um, he said, knowledge about God has infinite dimensions, and so we continually need to challenge things. And I find it fascinating to try and describe my own faith in terms of other people's faith. Sometimes I get stuck in the rote terminology, but when I can take a moment to try and express that in words that say, A completely different religion or someone who is not religious would say that, it kind of gives it a new life. And I feel like we should probably open our vocabulary that way. Maybe that's the risk of a bottom-up, you know, Hmm. religiosity, I'm not sure. But um, changing our language, I think, has some really interesting and um, cool dividends.
2: You're listening to A Conversation in Good Faith, A panel of guests sharing their thoughts after hearing my interview in the first half of today's show with Rabbi Fred Wenger. Now the discussion continues as they deal with the themes that stood out to them in this
3: interview.
1: There was a woman at church who gave a prayer. This was years ago, and I will never forget this prayer. But she stood up. I'm confessing a lot here, but I tend to tune out. It's more of the <laughs> ritual that you get through in order to move on to the next ritual, you know, when, when someone says either an invocation or a benediction um, to a service. And this was an invocation to a service. And she, she pled that the messages that day would sink down, way down into our hearts. And I had never heard that kind of terminology hmm. before. And I immediately popped open my eyes, which was probably not allowed, but I popped open my eyes and I thought, oh, that's right. She's speaking for me. She is the cantor, if you will, for that moment. And I can participate in this and I should listen to what she's saying. And anyway, it just revolutionized the day for me, actually. And I kind of wish I heard more prayers like that.
4: Well, and and you say, I mean, you, you describe prayer is a ritual. Um, when he, when the rabbi said that rituals are conduits to the divine, I thought that that struck a chord with me because um, I think that they can be conduits to the divine, but they can also just be rote rituals. You know, We talked a little bit about this already. These things that we do, these experiences that are repetitive, that are regular, that are consistent, they can Create a wedge that opens space in our heart and minds for God to come, or they could just be another another chore, another thing that we do, you know? And um at least for me, it seems like when they become the most meaningful is when I when I take them in, in a different approach. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when I take what's happened to me this day to this time I'm performing this ritual, that's when it becomes the most meaningful to me. If I just see it as this is something I did yesterday, this is something I'm going to do tomorrow, it just becomes meaningless. But if I am thinking this is something that I did yesterday in this context and this is something I'm going to do today in this context, all of a sudden it becomes so much more meaningful to me.
1: I also wonder if that ritual is so important because it's easier in ritual to see the difference when a difference happens if that makes sense. He talked about there not being a lot of experiences that are necessarily Paul-level experience, you know, where heaven and earth meet, they are heavenly visitations. But maybe in ritual, what we do is create almost a, a baseline so that then... When God is speaking to us or when we do have an experience that is important, it's so different because we are already in this pattern that is so comfortable to us. If every day we're different, we may be so upset by the, the change that we wouldn't notice an aberration in what's going on around us.
6: Yeah, that is related to, I think, what— um Rabbi Wanger said about uh, how when he was growing up, he, he went to religious school four times a week and had services on Saturday and so on and so forth. And there was never a time when Judaism was far from his awareness. And I think participating in those rituals is, is key in, in helping to develop that kind of 24-7 awareness of who you are as a religious person. And rituals can become rote. I think they're even... The mere act of participating, even if your heart isn't involved in it, I think is, is essential for just developing that awareness that, that, really, that really helps get you through life in the hard times.
1: One thing that really struck me in the interview, as Rabbi Wenger was talking about his history uh, with religion, was the turning point that happened with the death of his father, and that he then started going to a daily Hebrew service uh, with his grandfather, this shock that he would have to lead the service because someone in mourning leads the service. This led me to think, first of all, I am so sorry for you. You know, when you're your most vulnerable, you're your most public. But that this does seem consistent with how we tend to behave with grief. And that I know I myself tend to key into people when they are going through grief for them to teach me how to handle a situation or for me to see, ooh, what are they going to do? I'm not so sure it's voyeuristic as it is instructional for me and maybe my own um, doubt looking for a foundation and how other people handle grief. But I'm fascinated that it does serve a purpose for grief to be public or for us to be able to look at someone in their grief and learn from them.
6: We, we all kind of pursue a, a life that has few troubles in it and you want things to be as easy as possible. But when you're reading a book or watching a movie and there's a character that has no troubles, we hate that. We hate when they're perfect. And I think that plays into what we were talking about earlier with um, having someone who is experienced leading a group and being a person that you can look at. Because I think it, it does benefit us a lot um, in our own lives when we can see someone who is going through troubles, who Things aren't going well for them, and they they can either be an example or a bad example and it's It's interesting that I don't know we we do look for people who are going through emotional experiences to to figure out how to deal with our own
5: when I see someone who is in grief or 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 something like that my my first instinct isn't to teach or anything like that it's it's to literally just be a a person to, for for them to be with to console to to just feel okay it's common for us to hear uh, when we are at our lowest is when we is when we most seek god or something or some line along that i th- think it's fascinating that people who are in mourning like that are put at the front of a congregation because honestly I feel the person who is at that point is probably closer to God than me. It's probably closer to their mind. It's probably closer to um, their thoughts, their feelings. When they're at that point, it allows that person to feel and experience that their spirituality in a very unique way. And it allows them to, to teach me, to teach us. I, I've never viewed someone grieving as, as a person who... Could teach me spiritually.
4: Well, that's interesting because my thought is kind of like like he's being exploited almost. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like here he is in this terrible time of sadness, and and here lets the congregation learn something from him. And I think that that kind of attitude requires the participant to understand his role in a congregation, or um, or be willing even to share what they're feeling to share. Um, the experiences that they've had in a way that would benefit other people. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it requires community. You know, I wouldn't just go to a congregation that I didn't know and, and lead the sermon after my father had died. You know, you have to, to know the people that you're teaching to some degree or 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 feel some kind of empathy towards them or sympathy and want to help them.
1: The thing about community is perhaps it allows us to be vulnerable publicly in front of them because we feel a safety uh, in their presence and can be who we are. And, and that leads me to this idea that he shared, which was, we find God reaching out to touch us when we feel inadequate ourselves. And I think that idea of vulnerability seemed to permeate a lot of what he talked about and how he changed uh, in the army by ministering to people when they were their most vulnerable, when they felt their most inadequate in the trenches.
4: One thing that I thought was really interesting was how many of the rabbi's experiences were either the cause of fringe motives or unintentional. So, you know, he says, <laughs> cute, girls. cute girls, basketball, you know, um, he was urged to become a chaplain. He, um, you know, I, I, I thought that, that so interesting that all along his his journey, he was doing things maybe not always for his own motives or for the right motives and yet even still he was able to take something from those experiences i think that religious experience is is that in a lot of ways for a lot of people that you go to church or you seek god maybe for for reasons that are are, are selfish or not exactly not not pure and and yet somehow you still are able to find a connection to him
1: That reminds me of when the rabbi went to Israel for the first time and said that he was sightseeing and learning the language, and he thought everything was holy because it was written in the language, and then discovers, oh my goodness, so much of this is secular, and now I have to do the work of trying to divide religious from the secular. Um, And and while I do think that division is so important uh, to be able to make so that we don't confuse don't confuse ourselves. I do think there is a role for the secular in our religious development. I think it's okay to go because a cute girl or a cute boy <laughs> happens to be in that congregation. I think it may be part of our path. And I, because I believe in God, I feel like God can work with all things for good. And so I'm wondering... Well, we do need to separate the secular and the spiritual. If there is a greater role for the secular in our journey,
5: yeah, I feel like it's it's okay to pursue hobbies and regular interests, or and that kind of thing. Because for me personally, some of the the most special experiences in my life weren't because I was specifically in, in that moment pursuing a spiritual matter, but because it was I was out just participating in the things that I would do as a person. But because I, I have this, this spiritual background and this spiritual knowledge and faith, it led me to take this this secular experience and turn it into something into something beautiful. And without uh, having these normal experiences and participating in normal hobbies, uh, I feel like though that spiritual side is is lessened in a way, because you don't have things to relate to. you don't have uh, experiences to connect. To connect spiritual ideas,
6: all of this just makes me think and believe all the more that um, that in, in my experience and in, in experiences of people with faith, that there is a, a God there who is looking out for us, and He just He wants us to to be happy, and He'll work with us in in any way He can um, through whatever motives we're experiencing, or whatever hobbies, or whatever pursuits, or whatever whatever we have to work with. That God is there to work work with it and mold it into something to help make us better people.
2: That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our panelists, to Reed Wolfley and Marcus Smith for engineering support, to the cantor and choir of Congregation Kol Ami, and especially to Rabbi Emeritus Fred Wenger for his thoughtfulness and generosity in sharing with us. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about our program. Reach out to us anytime via email at ingoodfaith@byu.edu byu.edu or follow us on Twitter at InGoodFaithBYU. Find this and all past programs archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org ingoodfaith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon, right here in Good Faith.